Hey, everybody. So we've been a little bit heavy on the physics the last few episodes, so I thought I'd give Chad a little a little bit of a bone and replay an episode in which we got to talk about ants. Specifically, we invited his friend, Dr. Andrew Suarez, onto the podcast to talk about trap jaw ants. Enjoy. From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that is getting used to wearing pajamas all day for work. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Trap Jaw Ants. Hey, Chad. Uh, good afternoon, Michael. What are we talking about today? Ants, of course. Well, well consider I- me bowled over. Yeah, I'm also very happy to welcome my friend and postdoctoral mentor, Dr. Andrew Suarez. Andy is a professor at the University of Illinois. Among many things that Andy and his graduate students and postdocs work on is this really interesting biology of this group of ants with a particular kind of morphology called a trap jaw. And I don't know, maybe a good place to start would be just to talk a little bit about what trap jaw ants, and then there's this other morphology called a snap jaw. Can you maybe give us a little sense of what those are without using your hands to sort of mime what it is? Chad and Michael, thanks so much for having me. This is awesome, in part because I get to reconnect with Chad. Yeah, so ants are interesting for a lot of reasons. And I think one thing that for me, makes them so fascinating is they've divorced the reproductive caste, right? The queens and males. We don't ever talk about males because they are relatively ephemeral in most ants. But, you know, the queens as the females in charge of reproduction and then the workers, which are the females in charge of everything else. And that allows the workers to do things with their morphology that would probably be really constrained in organisms in which you have a solitary organism that has to do everything, forage and reproduce and whatever, right? So we're divorcing reproduction from all other tasks for the most part. And as a result, evolution has played with that form of the female worker. And one way it's done it is with the mandibles. And so ants vary incredibly in terms of their mandible shapes, how they're used as tools. And the group of ants or the groups of ants that I've become fascinated with are those that have a series of mechanisms that allow them to store and release elastic strain energy, that is to power amplify their mandibles So they achieve ridiculously fast speeds or accelerations and produce a lot more force than would be possible through simple muscle contraction alone. We call these ants trap jaw ants, or as Chad pointed out, trap jaw ants and snap jaw ants to kind of differentiate between two different ways that these power amplified mandibles work. And and what you see is typically these ants have elongate mandibles, much longer than typical. As a result, the mandibles can act as a lever arm, right? You have this huge mandible sticking out from their face with a small projection like an L so that when the muscle tugs on the small part of the L, the large long mandible moves a huge distance. So that's one mechanism that allows them to amplify power. All right. Um, So hold on. Can we break all this down a little bit? I mean, I love we're talking about levers and arms. This is this is up my alley here. But maybe we can, so mandible, I assume you mean that's the jaw. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So you can imagine the jaw of an ant is typically a small triangular thing pressed up against the face. And it uses it to masticate and maybe dig, you know, feed its nestmates. With trap giants, typically what you see is that mandible has now become elongated. It can be even longer than the head of the ant. So it's sticking out way out in front of the ant, like these giant arms almost with teeth at the end. I remember the first time I saw these things in Costa Rica running around and they just look really bizarre having, I mean, it's as if somebody took their arms and stuck them straight out in front of their bodies and then sort of like 
bent at the wrist so that your fingers are coming towards each other. That's what it looks like is coming out of the front of their face, sort of like proportionally, they're that big. Okay, so, I mean, most of what I know about ants, besides from Chad, is from the Marvel movies. And so I'm picturing Ant-Man riding on this little ant, and it has little pinchers on its mouth, Uh right? right? But you're saying that it looks the same, except those pinchers are, what, like the length of their body or... Not, not quite the length of their body. There are very few trap giant ants that have jaw mandibles that extend that far out. Typically, it's the length of their head. And so you can imagine, instead of having these small triangular mandibles that are used for chewing and digging and stuff, they now have these really long mandibles that are about as long as the head or longer that stick out in front mm. of the ant. Again, often with little teeth or clubs at the end. And also when they open them, like when ants typically open their mandibles, they open you know wide, left to right, creating a gap. Trap giants, they open them so they can go 180 degrees or greater so that in, in some trapped ants, the mandibles literally open so wide that they're sticking out behind their heads now, right? <laughs> and it's amazingly wide arc. And then they're cruising around looking for things to strike. And in fact, they have these specialized hairs that stick out of the mandible out in front of the ant when the mandible is open. They're basically waiting for them to detect something that would trigger the mandibles to shut. But so first of all, the, the structure of this is a little bit different because you're saying like, so our jaw, I guess, we have some muscles connecting. So yeah, typical... Uh, animals, including insects, have muscles. We have two muscles, right? Uh, Attached to two different parts of our jaw, a closing muscle and an opening muscle. And so we would use one of those muscles to open our jaw and then a second one to close it. And the speed in which we can close our jaw, our mouth, is determined by the muscle fibers, the number of of muscle fibers that are tight and Mm -hmm. how how fast they contract. So we are limited, most animal movements are limited in terms of their speed by muscle contraction. What these ants are doing differently is they're able to achieve speeds and forces much greater than would be possible through muscle contraction alone. So they have to figure out a way in order for that to happen to amplify their power. But the bottom line is what they've done is they've added a latch and a spring. So imagine a mouse trap where you have this, again, a lever arm that that's going to swing and smack the mouse that comes to feed on the cheese. And that's held in place by a latch. And all of this energy is stored when you move that lever arm back into a spring so that the spring gets compressed, the lever arm gets put in place, and the latch locks it in place. The latch is attached to a sensor plate. That's where the cheese is. When the mouse touches the sensor plate, the latch is released. The spring releases all of that energy at once. And that causes the mousetrap to swing forward incredibly fast. Similar also to a crossbow. The arc of a crossbow, when you pull that string back, it's very difficult to pull back or or any bow, like a compound bow, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're storing a huge amount of elastic strain energy in the bow itself, the curvature of the bow. Now, with a normal bow, you have to hold all that energy back with your arm when you pull it back. It's difficult to hold a bow in the ready position. What a crossbow does is it adds a latch so that you can hold that string in place let go of the string. And now all that stored energy is ready to go. And depending on how fast you can move that latch out of the way, you can kind of explosively release all of that stored energy all at once. And so that's what these ants are doing with their mandibles. They have a latch that holds the mandibles open, muscles are contracting, and then there are mechanisms in which we believe that elastic strain energy is being stored in the cuticle or the apodeme of the muscles. That's kind of a big question still, is how much and where is that elastic strain energy? But we know that there's a 
separate muscle called the trigger muscle that pulls the latch out of the way, allowing those mandibles to fly forward at incredible velocities and subsequently produce forces that are capable of stabbing and crushing. So you're saying that there literally is some sort of a latch. I thought you were just giving sort of a metaphor like this would snap back like that, but you're saying in these mandibles, there literally is like a latch there that's keeping them That's right. And the the source of the latch varies depending on which group of trap jaw ants you're talking about. Hmm. This idea of um, this trap jaw ant morphology has evolved independently many, many times in ants, different subfamilies, and then within subfamilies often many times. Recent work that we did in collaboration with Doug Boer, who's currently at Yale, and Evan Economo at Okinawa Institute for Science and Technology, showed even within one genus of ants, Strumogenes, these tiny little leaf litter ants, this trap jaw mechanism has evolved five, six, seven times oh. independently in different biogeographic regions. So it's very effective and it appears to evolve using these, these different parts and different groups of ants to create this mm. power amplified system. And so then the ant has muscles to open them up and that's sort of like a, a slow process. Exactly. Yeah. Relatively, right? Whereas, as you said, like when we're chewing or something, we have one set of muscles to open, one set of muscles to close it back down. But those are both equally fast or equally strained. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot more muscles to close because we need the strength to bite, right? Oh, yeah, um, yeah. If someone holds your mouth shut, it's actually quite hard to get it open, right? Because we don't have that many strong muscles. It doesn't matter how forceful we can open our mouth, really. And so there's a lot more muscles for closing, right? To great force for closing. And again, right. with the ants, they're using these slow muscles to load energy rather than fast muscles to, to close quickly with trap jar. Hmm. So talk a little bit more about some ideas about where that energy is stored. You mentioned possibly in the exoskeleton itself, or is what are some structures that might yeah, so hold that? The, the source for storing elastic strain energy is likely coming from three different places. Um, the muscles themselves, when they're under tension, could potentially disfigure and then snap back. Uh, the apodeme, or what's the tendon that connects the bundles of muscles to the mandible itself, is a kind of a long, in trapped ants, it's much longer than a normal ant. And it's a kind of elastic and could act as a great source of storage for energy. But then all the places where those muscles are connected to the head, when we film the ants do their strikes with high speed, we actually see the cuticle of the head disfigure, right? The, mm. the head kind of puckers in at these attachment points suggesting that when these muscles are really contracted, they're bending the cuticle in and that when that latch is released, it kind of pops back out. And that could be another source where elastic strain energy is stored and released. Cool. Yeah. So we should clarify, Mike, that in insects, these are, everybody's familiar with the idea of an exoskeleton. And for insects, the muscles are on the inside of that exoskeleton. And so that includes inside the head, but in ants and other insects, that head is just packed full of muscle okay. that operate the mandibles. And so the attachment points would be then on certain parts of the inside of that head capsule, presumably like sort of towards the back or the top of the head. Mm -hmm. And then the other end, I guess, would be attached to the where the mandible inserts into the jaw. Yeah, you can imagine hundreds of muscle fibers all coming together. So they're all distributed across the, around the inside of the head. That's a kind of an anchor. But then all these fibers are coming together at a single point at the base of the apodeme, which then extends to the mandible. Mm. So it's like each muscle fiber does its work by pulling on a single string, all collectively coming together a single string that then's yanking on the mandible. Of course, the mandible is locked in place, right? Allowing you to start storing a huge amount of elastic strain energy when those muscles contract until a separate muscle, the trigger muscle, pulls that latch out of the way or disfigures the notch that it's set in somehow 
allowing that mandible to be released and go shooting forward. Cool. Can you talk a little bit about some of the high-speed filming work that you and your collaborators have done and what you found from that? Yeah, so people have been working on these ants for a long time, kind of going back to Wolfula Gronenberg and Bert Holdauber in the 80s. And they were limited in part at that time by technology, right? High-speed cameras have come a long way. So even when I first started working on them around 2003 or something like that, she had access to these cameras that would film in the hundreds of thousands of frames per second. And so you could finally really capture the dynamics, the kinematics of the movement uh, in ways that we couldn't before. The issue, of course, at the time was the light you needed um, to do that, right? If you're filming at 100,000 frames per second, you need a huge amount of light and lights tended to be hot. And so you'd turn on the lights, you'd film the ants, they would strike and they would die because of the heat of the lights. Now, of course, with LED technology and the cameras have gotten even faster, right? So we have LED lights that, that produce a huge amount of light with no heat. We have cameras that can film now up to a million frames per second. So we wow. can now capture the kinematics of these ridiculously fast movements, order of magnitude or more faster than a blink of an eye. And we can capture them in this amazing detail because of the technology. And so what we would do is kind of fly all over the world looking for these ants that are largely tropical in their distribution, get permits to collect them, permits to export them back into my lab. And then we would set them up, hold them in place under a microscope, get them to strike uh, while filming them anywhere from 40,000 to 250,000 frames per second in order to capture the, the kinematics and describe what they're capable of doing. I mean, technology has, has come a long way, even since when we first started this work to allow us to capture the amazing accelerations and speeds that they obtain. Is it possible for public audiences to view any of these? Oh, yeah. We have some on our website at the University of Illinois, the lab website. The, also with our publications, we, we often publish videos along with them. So yeah, between like YouTube and our websites, you can definitely find these videos. We'll be sure to put a link on our Facebook page to give your stuff the okay. crisscrossing yeah. bump. Yeah, no, I'm happy to provide uh, links. Or if you just Google trap giant videos, right? they, they yeah. you can find them yeah. easily. So how do some of these forces and speeds that you've been measuring compare to some other, I don't know, fast things, biological sure. movements? But, yeah, forces, it's hard to discuss like what 40 or 50 nanonewtons or whatever that, you know, I can't even remember the, actually the units that we measure these forces. And these ants are really small. Even a large trap jaw ant is a centimeter and a half, you know. And so, and the mandibles are hollow. They're made of very light materials. It really appears that they're being selected for speed to capture elusive things or dangerous things rather than force. Although again, on the scales at which they're operating, they are producing enough force to crush other insects, right? Mm -hmm. But in terms of speed, we are getting anything from like 40, 50 meters per second, all the way to some species that are up to 80, 85 meters per second. So they're among the fastest biological movements ever recorded, particularly for something that can be reset. You know, here's an appendage that is obtaining 80 meters per second, and then it can be reset and immediately used again. There are very few things that reach those speeds. There are things like the explosive barbs from jellyfish uh, mm -hmm. or fungi who use water pressure to have an explosive release of pollen. But those things aren't resettable, right? They're kind of right. using water pressure to shoot something out. Peregrine falcons diving with the assistance of gravity are faster. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, they're cheating, of course. Yeah. The, um, but in, in terms of these kind of appendage movements, with the exception of perhaps some termites or some of these shrimp that also use the power amplified movements, uh, there's nothing that's really that close. It's really amazing. So two questions, related questions. 
How how do these ants with this really unique jaw morphology, what do they use those jaws for? What are they adapted for doing? But then how do they do the other kinds of more mundane tasks that also have to be accomplished in a nest, like feeding brood and perhaps cleaning themselves or others or digging a tunnel, right? You wouldn't, if you were trying to dig or feed a brood, you wouldn't want your jaws being triggered and crushing everything all the time. Yeah, those are really good questions. So a typical ant mandible, a small triangular jack of all trades type tool is ideal for doing all those things. You can move it incredibly carefully. You can pick up an egg, you can feed nest mates, you can forage and you know rip apart an insect prey that you find, but you can also use it as a shovel to dig. And I do think that when ants evolve this remarkably specialized mandible type, this really elongate powerful mandible, that must compromise their ability to do some of these other things. Having said that, they still can pick up an egg delicately, right? By using that closer mandible and opening mandible without locking it open, they can still move their mandibles really delicately, pick up an egg, groom, feed nest mates, even dig, I just suspect they're not doing it quite as well or carefully as some other, other ants can. And in fact, there, there's an example of a, a trapped ant in Costa Rica in the genus Acanthognathus, whose elongate jaws, even you know, almost half the length of the body, end in these pointy teeth. And it, it appears to be impossible for them to do something like pick up an egg. Instead, what they do is they open up the jaws so that the mandibles are now facing completely behind their head. And they have these little teeth at the base of the mandible that are blunt that they use to pick up and do things delicately much closer to their face, almost as if they have like a, a mini jaw at the base of their really long jaw hmm. to allow them to do uh, different behaviors. So yeah, I, I think that some performance must be compromised due to specialization, but they're still capable of doing everything they need to do. You know, behaviorally, some trapped ants have done some really cool things with the power amplification. So clearly we think that this has evolved as a, a mechanism for prey capture. It makes them super predators. They can capture things like springtails that have a very fast escape response. So as you know, springtails can jump away really quickly while well, having a, a power amplified mandle allows you to capture them before they jump away. Increasing the speed also allows you to kind of disable things that might be dangerous, like a termite that might have a defensive attack or something. But some of these trapped ants also appear to use their jaws specifically for defense in that not only is this increased speed and force generation allow you to kind of grab things and crush things, if you strike something with an incredible amount of force and that, that object is relatively immovable, that force gets reflected back on the ant. And what we see in some of these trap jaw ants is that when they strike something, they get kind of repelled, they bounce off of that object. And so that their, their mandibles are not only used for capturing things and crushing things, but they can be used as a propulsive mechanism, much like we use our legs to jump. Of course, the difference is that they're producing hundreds of times their body mass for power or force. And, and so they're jumping, you know, way up into the air with their mandible by striking hard objects. And so, and you've probably mm. seen this in Costa Rica, if you deserve a colony and they start getting excited, they will snap their mandibles against the ground and it's like popcorn. All these ants start shooting up into the air, they're landing on you, they're stinging you. I mean, it's, it, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I've rolled over like a log before and uncovered one of these nests. And it's, it's exactly like you say, it's like, it's weird. They're just sort of like, sort of bouncing there. And before you know it, they're sort of on your pants. That's right. <laughs> and and they, they, they have audible snaps, right? It's like, yeah, you can snap, hear snap, them. Snap, snap, snap. And then all of a sudden they're just like flying through the air. Now, whether or mm. not that, that is an evolved defensive mechanism, right? To both escape a threat, but also to potentially get on it and sting it. I mean, who knows? But 
you know, when you see it, you it's you can't mistake it for anything else. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. So they have separate stingers. That's right. So um, on the opposite end, right, coming off the end of their abdomen, the hymenoptera have stingers that have been modified as ovipositors as well. So they're useful for not only stinging and injecting venom, they can be used to, to lay eggs. And while some ants have lost their stingers, most trap jar ants have not, right? They actually have a well-developed sting. So if they strike you with their mandible, in addition to the damage that the mandible does, if they grab you, they will come in with their stinger and inject venom, which is uh, also going to be disabilitating to a small insect and painful to someone as large as Chad or myself. Yeah, it's not the worst sting that you could ever get, but it's still not pleasant. It's after like the 10th or 20th, <laughs> they re you really start to notice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen the videos of the escape jumps where slow motion and the mandibles close and they're either like facing down at the ground or on like some forceps that you've put in front of them and they just like doing yeah like they, you know ass over tea kettle cartwheel back that's it's right. amazing because all that force is you know at one end of the body right the end of the, yeah. the face it, it causes these remarkable spins Right. And so they, they launch off the ground and they just start spinning through the air. There actually is a, a behavioral context in which we've seen them use their jaws to escape that really does appear to be purposeful. And that's with antlions. You know, antlions, which are larvae, dig these conical pits made of sand. And when ants walk on the sides of these conical pits, the sand is unstable. The antlions throw more sand at them and they tumble down to the bottom of the pit where the antlions grab them. And in Florida, there's a species of trap giant, which when it falls into these pits will strike the side of the pit with its mandible, causing the ant to jump out of the pit and escape predation from the ant line. So it's really amazing that they've kind of, they can use their mandibles, not only for capturing prey, but to propel themselves to escape a threat. These are ant lions? Is that what you're saying? That's right. What are the adults called for ant lions? They're in the Neuroptera. Their adults are these like dragonfly type flying insects. But as larvae, they're these ridiculously scary looking monsters that dig pits in the sand and lure other insects down in there. Hmm. Yeah, they're not a common thing to see the insect itself. But if you live in the right part of the country, you're probably familiar with these little conical pits that Andy was talking about. Yeah. Okay. Well, you mentioned that they have this morphology has arisen numerous times, including multiple times within some genera. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the number of times that they've evolved and what a phylogeny of them might look like and what might be some evolutionary precursors of this morphology. Like, are there any pre-adaptations or interesting features in related non-trap jaw ants that look in some way related to the development of this trap jaw morphology? Yeah, that's a good question. So we, we know that trap jaw ants have evolved independently in at least four different subfamilies, and then you're probably seven times at least within one of those subfamilies of ants, right? So there, it's, it happened many times. The thing is, even with some of the better resolved phylogenies we have, we don't always know exactly what the sister, the non-power amplified or non-trap jaw ant sister group is. And so it's, it's hard for us to know if there's this common body plan that has to be in place in order for this trap jaw morphology to arise. And it likely isn't because it's evolved so many different times in so many different places and, and in groups where you don't have similar looking things as kind of the, the likely common ancestor to trap jaw and non-trap jaw ants. And so uh, there appears to be diverse ways to do it. But the fact that it's happened so many times suggests that this kind of underlying machinery, developmental machinery is there in ants uh, that can be selected on, right? Elongating the mandible, finding a way to 
change muscle fiber type, finding a way to create a latch. There are some ways in which different independent evolutionary transitions to power amplified mandibles. There are some things that appear to be more or less in common. You need to house in your head giant mandibles to power them, right? And so we tend to see really large elongate heads that are often lobed, almost heart-shaped at the top, each different heart, half of the heart, housing these giant muscle closing mandibles that are there to help create that energy that is in stored. Again, there has to be a latch to help that energy be stored in the elastic element, but the latch is different. In some ants, it's what's called the labrum, which is a piece that slides forward, locking the mandible open, and then it has to be physically pulled out of the way. In other ants, it, there appears to just to be a groove where the mandible is connected to the head that kind of locks it in place in which a little disfiguring can get it unlocked. Mm -hmm. But in general, what we do see is this convergence, increase in the amount of muscle, a transition from fast to slow muscle fibers, and then some latch to, to help keep that uh, locked in place while that energy is built up. Cool. What might be some interesting applications of some of these findings and about the way that these ants store this energy and then use it? Yeah, so it's with a group here that we have in Illinois, which is a mix of biologists, and then teaming up with people in engineering, we've become fascinated by this idea that we can solve real world problems by turning to nature to figure out how nature had done it first, right? How has evolution come up with a solution to problem using millions of years? And can we use that design to come up with practical solutions? And that's a field that's becoming pretty popular now called bio-inspired design, turning to biology or turning to nature to look for inspiration to solve real world problems. And I think these trap giants are really cool at coming up with ways to increase speed, massively accelerate something using very, very simple material that are themselves resistant to damage. So that you can imagine if you could accelerate a hammer to 80 meters per second in just a fraction of a second, you would throw your arm out. Like, I mean, you would your arm would probably fall off, right? I mean, we would just, <laughs> we would disfigure ourselves. Yet these really small insects are capable of these massive amounts of power amplification without crushing their own heads or disfiguring themselves in the process. And so by turning to nature to figure out how they can do it and see how that can inspire things like robotics or micro suturing devices and things like that, I think could hold a huge amount of promise and a, and a wide variety of disciplines. So we're really excited uh, to do that, to turn to nature to come up with these bio-inspired solutions. Yeah, I, I was thinking about the kind of scaling up to the size of an animal more similar to us and what that would do to our bodies to, to be moving this rapidly. Yeah, it would not be and pretty, right? That, that kind of scaling, acceleration. Scaling is always an issue, right? As physicists know, mass works against us, right? If, if a mouse jumps off the top of a building, it hits the ground and runs, right? <laughs> because it's, its own mass isn't crushing all of its organs. In contrast, if a horse jumps off of a building, right? <laughs> it's a totally different thing, you know? Yeah. And so that we have the same issue when, you know, with power amplification, as things get bigger, that torque is gonna to be really problematic. In the case of these ants specifically, it's gonna be really applicable to things like micro robotics, you know, really, really small things in which you won't have some of those side effects. Yeah. Where do you see this maybe going next? in addition to, or anything else in addition to the bio-inspired design angle? Yeah, so we're really, again, fascinated by how something like this evolves as a, an entire system. We have all these different parts that have to come together. You know, we're looking at some kind of modeling and, and using a variation on what's called sensitivity analysis. You have all these parts. You have a mandible that can be really long or can be short. You have different amounts of muscle volume or, or muscle mass. You have you know, different ways to design a latch. 
different places that the, the spring can be placed or used to store energy, we can try to get real parameters on the ants, like actually measure the biological parameters that exist in the system. But then by creating a model, you can mess with them. What happens if the mandible gets longer or if the muscle gets larger or the, the tension in the spring gets greater? You know, how is the whole system sensitive to messing with each component? And which components appear to be quite rigid, that is, they really have to evolve in a very specific way in order for it to work, while which ones have more flexibility so you can maintain performance. Once we work that out kind of in a model, then we can ask, well, are those axes of variations that, that we would argue are really easy to mess with? Is that where we see the variation in nature? So when we mm. see trapture ants, like with really long heads or round heads or whatever, or are, are there some kind of forms that you just would never work? Right. Mm. And so the idea is that we would predict which forms work and which forms won't work theoretically. And then we'll ask, do we see those forms that we argue should never exist? Is it true that they don't exist? Right. Because then that right. would help support that. And so that's another direction we're taking this work that I'm kind of excited about. My joke is that you can imagine creating parameter space that's much more efficient than what you see in nature. And in fact, in nature and by no means is intelligently designed. In fact, it is restricted by history. That is, trapture ants came from a common ancestor that was not a trapture ant, but that evolved for something, for, for all sorts of reasons. And so evolutionary history constrains things as much as allows things to evolve. But in addition, we can imagine designing a robot that does one thing really, really well. It can create force more than any other thing in the world, but it can't pick up an egg. Right? <laughs> and these ants still have to pick up an egg. They still have to feed the queen. They still have to take care of themselves and dig. They have to do all of these other things as well, right? And so again, our modeling space will create monsters that simply won't exist in nature because they, they have to do so many other things that it's just not realistic right. to create. We can specialize in one thing as an engineer quite easily. But, you know, having something that can do everything is, is that's where we turn to nature for, because that's, that's what yeah. they've been able to do. I have a question. So the, the queen, I mean, you said that we can separate out morphology, you know, at the, at the top of the show. So does the queen also have the snap jaw? Or? They do. Uh, that's okay. what's interesting is that these most, if not all trap jaw ants, the queens also being female also have these specialized morphology in the jaws. What and about so, the males? The males do not. The males tend to have these really almost worthless little mandibles. You know, again, you know, males don't do much. They don't really even take care of themselves. They fly, they mate, they die. And so- They're lovers, not fighters, yeah. That's right. Ants really vary in terms of the strategies queens use to start a new colony. So if you're like a leaf cutting ant or an army ant, you're a giant egg laying machine and that's all you do. You're gonna lay a hundred to a thousand eggs a day, highly specialized to lay eggs and they're not able to, to, to do much else. And so they're dependent on the workers to defend the colony and stuff. While most trap giants, like the Odontomachus that you know, Chad mentioned he saw in Costa Rica, those queens, they have to forage on their own and provide nutrients to their first eggs and larvae. And so they, they have to be effective foragers as well, which is likely why we see these specialized mandibles and many trap giants, and the queens as well as the workers. Well, thank you, Andy. Oh, thank you, Chad and Mike. Thanks so much for having me. This was this was a lot of yeah. fun. It's great to learn about the diversity of life, even in in the ant community. Oh. <laughs> even ants, that's right. What do you, What do you mean, even? <laughs> I mean, there's so much fascinating life underneath our, our feet. You know, you take a walk outside in a forest, in a prairie, anywhere. These kinds of things are everywhere, not just in the tropics. These are they're they're in Oregon. You know, there there are ants 
these obligate raiding ants that raid each other's nests and steal brood and rear them as their own and these complicated recognition systems. And, and I mean, there's all sorts of cool things. And obviously, if, even if you move away from ants, it gets even more fascinating. So hmm. uh, you don't have to go far to find really cool things to study. Well, thank you for your expertise. My, my pleasure. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodeo Ortega wrote a theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to our podcast. That way you will download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for a future episode, email us at crisscrossingsci at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>